Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week on 321 Go, we're talking big things. Then our own Hugh Drummond talks to Craig Sandler from Statehouse News about what it's like for reporters during election season and election day, sharing some of his own stories and experiences of elections gone by. And in two minutes with Tom this week, Tom's talking about midterm elections and what a potential flip of the house means for our own Massachusetts delegation. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, the official podcast series of O'Neill & Associates, New England's leader in public affairs. My name's Cosmo Massero, your host for 321 Go, where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three compelling topics from the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. In this installment of 321 Go, it's our special World Series Championship Edition. The Red Sox are 2018 Major League Baseball World Series champs, and the rest of America has yet another reason to hate Boston. What's it like to be hated? Well, who knows better than Boston sports fans? What exactly are we supposed to do about it? We'll discuss. We'll also talk about Red Sox pitcher David Price, who seems to have taken the advice of O.A. on air. He began his image rebuilding campaign by being absolutely untouchable in his World Series pitching appearances. So what's next from a PR perspective? If he wants to make sure the price is right with fans, the media, and everyone else, we'll discuss it. And American voters are just days away from midterm elections. Unprecedented, shocking events leading up to this critical high-stakes election day. The MAGA bomber, the horrific shooting in the Pittsburgh synagogue, and the president's unthinkable responses to these events. And finally, we report direct from the O'Neill & Associates prime viewing spot at the Red Sox World Series Victory Parade. That's right, this is 321 Go on OA on Air, and we are winning. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. Kyan, let's get to it. So, Kyan, I'm old, but I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that when I was growing up, we didn't experience this kind of just embarrassment of riches when it comes to sports success. Um, when I was a little kid, the Bruins won a couple Stanley Cups. And when I was a teenager and in high school, man, the Celtics were everything. Um, that was kind of it. You know, the, the, the Red Sox went to the 86 World Series, but that was a disaster. When I was a kid, the, the 75 World Series was very exciting. Carlton Fisk hits the home run in the sixth game, but it ultimately ends with, you know. Not well. Not, 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 you know, they, they lose to the Cincinnati Reds. The Patriots, their first breakthrough year really was 85. They go to the Super Bowl. It's an amazing thing. They get destroyed in the biggest to that point, Super Bowl defeat ever. Uh, and then there were various years of just just terrible play. But people, certainly my kids and, 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 and millennials, have never experienced that. It's just an onslaught of success over and over, largely driven by the Patriots initially and continually. But but the Red Sox. I mean, the, the and the Celtics. And the were Celtics. In there. Were, and no, then we uh, have the Stanley uh, Cup too. Uh, yes, but, but but the Red Sox. We experienced this eighty-six year period of the curse. The curse of the Bambino. 
And you referred to it, 2004, you break the curse, and there you go. And that's why America hates Boston fans. And, and I'm okay with that, and I accept it. How about you? Uh, I'm fine with it. We have become, this city is now an expert at hosting rallies. Like, yeah. We just know how to do it. It's like, an, it's like a switch. We just know how to, how to do a rally. Yeah. It, it, we know when it's coming. Um, we'll see all the kids skipping. Two days we'll preparation, yeah. literally. Oh, That's it. Massive, sta- uh, million, no uh, million people coming downtown for a uh, Got it. victory rally? No problem. Yeah. We'll see lots of kids skipping school um, yeah. in the city tomorrow. Um, uh, you know, we're also kind of really obnoxious fans sometimes. Yeah. So I, I, that's probably – if we were just a, a city that had a lot of great championships, maybe we would still be kind of hated. But sometimes we are so obnoxious about being champions. Um, you know, we had this conversation in the office this week. Like, why do we chant Yankees suck when the Yankees have nothing to do with the game it or really, even the sport it sometimes. Me. If you're playing the Yankees, you can chant Yankees suck. And only then. Don't ever do it again. It, 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 like, at a, at a, like at a Bruins game? Like, uh, uh, there's well, no need. funny. The, the, <laughs> the very first big, big modern era rally on City Hall Plaza when the Patriots won their first Super Bowl, right? I think it was Ty Law that started a Yankees suck chant. Yeah. Why? It is neither here nor there. Oh my! And then don't get me—I don't know. This is why I hate Boston sports fans. <laughs> don't get me started with Sweet Caroline. Yes, uh, it—it—they it, it, it were singing. It has become they very. Did, we, I was at the boxing match that we promoted. They did Sweet Caroline at the, at the bleeping boxing. Well, match. everyone's hijacking Sweet Caroline because they saw the, the enormity of the success. No, not even at close, Fenway. by the way, to the best Neil Diamond song. Not even no, close. No, but top here's 10. the thing: even Red Sox fans who say they are sick of hearing Sweet Caroline. They got a good buzz in the eighth inning, and they are chanting, so good, so good, so good, Not along me. with everybody else. Not me. I'm giving them the, the middle finger rockets. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, it, it's, it's another reason to hate us, but I'll tell you, it doesn't get old. No. It doesn't get old. I, uh, I love that there's a, a plethora of good sports teams to watch, and I, you know, I, think it's, I, I do think it's great for kids. I think it's great for kids to see. It is and, great for kids. Um, Gets them excited about sports and, uh, you know, does it spoil them a little bit? Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> My kids as sports fans are spoiled rotten. Yes. Spoiled rotten. They don't know the plight of yeah. watching their teams lose. All right. That's why they call it title town. We're winning uh, here in Boston. All right, Cayenne, it's days away from midterm elections, and as the Huffington Post calls it, it's been preceded by a week of American hate. We've got the MAGA bomber, letter bombs mailed. Two black people essentially executed at a supermarket in Kentucky, and of course the horrific slaughter at the synagogue in Pittsburgh where Jews were murdered while they're worshiping. All this preceding midterm elections, all this punctuating an environment, I believe undeniable, an environment of hatred that we have not seen in America, certainly in my lifetime, and here we are in the midst of it as we head to midterms. What do you think? You feel one way or another about everything that's happened. What people need to realize, and just to underscore, election day is Tuesday, November 6th. Um, we, you know, we mentioned this last week. Your voice is, you know, your vote is your voice. So if you have feelings about this either way, hopefully 
you are outraged as as so many of us are, um, get out. You have to vote. This is this is the time to say that this is unacceptable. There's only one way. You know, you can tweet about it. You can post on Facebook. You can you can talk about it. Um, but I think the real question is going to be: Does it drive more people to the polls on November sixth? Um, I think on it, both sides. I think it pulls people out on both sides. I do think that this has to um, really awaken a lot of people who, who may not have thought about how important it is to vote in this election. And I, I, I got to be transparent here because number one, I don't know that it is even a solution to this predicament we're in as Americans. I don't know that shifting the balance of power in the House to Democrats is even really a solution. I'll tell you this, absent this presidency, absent this uh, this unprecedented environment of hate that this presidency, I believe, has contributed to and enabled, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't, I, I could care less. I wouldn't even advocate for, for, I'm a, I've, I had been, a, I've been a Republican all my life, and like many others, I'm a Republican who is ap- who is uh, uh, astonished and horrified by the environment of hate that has been enabled by this administration. But I feel pretty fatalistic. I feel like that will be a victory of some sorts that at least changes the balance of power and takes away some of the influence of the president. I don't think it's going. In fact. I, I think it'll probably just amp up the environment of hatred. But what I think if it, the balance of power shifts. What I think it does is it sends a message, right? If 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 things remain status quo and Republicans um, maintain control of the House, the Senate, and and the White House, um, it sends a message to our president and to his administration that this rhetoric is working and that it's okay and what he's sort of stoking is is acceptable. Um, He's a he's a he's a popularity guy. He he needs to be liked. He needs to. That's that's a, sort of his mo. Um, I think if we can flip the House and or the Senate, um, I think that it sends a strong message that what you what's been going on isn't okay. That um, that the country has a problem with it. And is it a solution? Probably not. I think that uh, it's going to take a lot more than than just that. But what it what it says, I hope, um, speaks in volumes. Much bigger issues. All right, so I'm here with um, Brooke Sion, our super producer, um, filling in in this part of uh, 321 Go for Kyan Isaacson. Brooke, we talked a few weeks ago about David Price uh, from a couple of different perspectives, primarily from a PR kind of image perspective, and, and, the, and the idea was that he'd done some damage to himself over the, over, over the past couple of years. He rebuilt himself um, with uh, a pretty good, a good regular season, a solid regular season in terms of his performance. Uh, he's kind of a surly character. He had that run-in with Dennis Eckersley. He had the big flare-up over his excessive play of... Uh, uh, of uh, Fortnite and whether it caused a hand injury, and really the sports media has been had been really down on him. Then he goes into that Yankees game in the postseason and just gets completely shelled. And we sort of entered that point and said, "All right, this is the moment if David Price is going to sort of rebuild his his larger reputation. Step one is he's got to 
perform in the postseason. And boy, oh boy, he sure did, right? Yeah, I mean, keep in mind when we were talking, he'd still never won a postseason game. I mean, we're talking 0-9 up to the point that we made our segment last time, which was the day, actually, that he got his first, well, it wasn't a win, it was a no decision. Uh, It was still a good game. He let up four runs, I think, in that game against the Astros. But I think that sort of gave him the courage he needed or in some way sort of revived him and you know they ended up winning that game so that's that's good for him he was taken out I think in the fourth inning though um, but then he comes back and is immediately dominant in his next start is just absolutely untouchable you know they win then what happens you, you say okay well maybe he's a fluke he gets his first win they go to the World Series same thing just untouchable I mean pitches two probably of the best World Series games that we've seen in a long time basically gets robbed or not robbed for the MVP award from Steve Pierce, but Steve Pierce, if he hadn't had those two home runs in Game Five, it, the MVP would have been David Price. Oh, absolutely! And I and I sensed a little bit of disappointment. You could see on his face; he kind of looked away. You get a, a soft clap for Steve Pierce. Absolutely, an MVP worthy performance. And um, you know, now he's really vacated those demons no he did exactly what what i said that and we both said that he had to do he had to win first the the only way to make red sox fan like you is to win is to win and i also said and i had said at the time on our on our podcast also on social media i said you know what i'm rooting for this guy because i love a great turnaround story i love a great story of redemption and 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 i'm rooting for this guy to do that he did it on the field he also has opted in to his Red Sox contract as we speak right now, uh, as we record right now in advance uh, of the Red Sox World Series parade. So I think this could be his big his big public relations coming out after the big uh, World Series victory in that he is he's lined up to be the kind of figure if he wants, that uh, that a Pedro Martinez has been and a David Ortiz. I think he's got more to do in terms of more winning, but also uh, being a little more gregarious and a little more likable. But uh, I think David Price uh, is going to find he likes life as a member of the Boston Red Sox. Well, I think once you win a World Series, you sort of, you like like wherever you are a little bit more. Um, And you know, there are some people who just aren't the most likable people. Is David Price ever going to be the most charismatic person on the Red Sox team? Probably not. Is that his fault? Absolutely not. He's just, you know, sort of living his life. I mean, he's a, an incredible pitcher. You can't fault him for that. We've got him for five more years, so everybody better be rooting for him. I think we've got him for five more years. Yeah. I mean, we're paying him an insane amount of money. I mean, there's really no no reason that anyone in Boston should be rooting against or talking Ted, badly you know, of David Price. Great Red Sox players of yesteryear. Ted Williams was was notoriously surly. Kind of hated. Yeah, he's just uh, a spitted fans. fans. Spitted yeah. fans gave him the middle finger. Jim Rice. He, 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 by his statistics and performance, should have been in the Baseball Hall of Fame many years before he actually was. He was so unlikable they wouldn't vote him in. Ultimately, they did. Um, and, and, and the list can actually go on and on. Um, but the reality is uh, this has really been a season and a postseason of, of redemption for David Bryce. All right, that's going to do it. 321 Go is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Road at our offices in Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masseri. 
That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Craig Sandler of Statehouse News. Hugh Drummond here for OA On Air, and I'm speaking today with uh, Craig Sandler. And it is fine to be here. How are you, Hugh? Good to have you here. Uh, Statehouse News Service, we're, we're really pleased to have you in, in, in our studio today. That is a thrill to hear. <laughs> so um, election day is approaching, and uh, wa- walk us through how the Statehouse News approaches election day. Sure. Well, you know, if you want to know the truth, the organization that I'm kind of in awe of on election day is the AP. We do not try to go town by town, city by city, local by local, rounding up those figures. And those guys really do. Even in, you know, an era of obviously very diminished uh, payrolls and staff in the journalism industry, and the AP has not been immune, they're able to get those vote totals out statewide and down to the, you know, the state rep governor's council level yeah. before you got to go to bed late, but before you go to bed. I, I, I just, I, I'm permanently in awe of the work that the Associated Press does on election night. But that said, uh, we obsess. We uh, do not show up in the office. We won't show up in the office. Uh, November 6th, uh, a couple of us will come in uh, 2 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon. It's the strangest day of the year in, the, in that building. And I swear that really might be true. I think it might be the oddest feeling day of the year because everybody wants to know so badly what's going to happen. And absolutely nothing happens all day long. You can predict some things you can absolutely count on. We will do probably a photo or a little bit of coverage of the voting booths in the state house down on the first floor. It might be the basement, but I think it's the um, it's where you come in from the outside through Ashburton Park. So I guess that's the basement. My point is that's where John Kerry votes when he's in Massachusetts. It's obligatory. In fact, I think that's where JFK uh, voted, and I wouldn't be completely. I wouldn't be flabbergasted if the O'Neills voted there at some point in their long history. Putting that aside, the, the day is very quiet and very strange and very special and absolute torture. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, on years like this and gubernatorial years and, of course, presidential years, uh, but, but gubernatorial years as well when there's all the statewide races, we um, know well in advance which hotels we're going to go to in Boston. For us, that's really what it's all about is, uh, you know, um, know, your clients, um, clients of various shops all over the city, and, of course, our subscribers, um, they all want to know what the mood is like, what the scene is like, what people said, particularly in races like this Secretary of State's race between Galvin and Amori, where it got so ugly, People just can't help it. It's, it's like a, um, they, want the, they want the quotes from the loser. They want to see if uh, uh, Bill Galvin is magnanimous, although they uh, secretly hope that he's not, of course. Yeah. That's assuming that he right. wins. And you do get upsets. Yeah. That's always completely Any surprises that, that you see coming? And, and do I anticipate any surprises? It would really be um, Congress. So mm. if. Tedeschi, if it turned out, a la Presley, now that was a, you know, Capuano, that was a primary, um, if um, Tedeschi were 
to beat Bill Keating by 14 votes, I would not be, my heart would not absolutely stop. Um, if um, Green and Trahan, if that was a kind of a tussle up there, and there, there may be some cities and towns where those candidates do better than we expect, um, that might be an upset. Other than that, particularly in this state this year, no, not really. I mean, it's a weird, right? It's a, such a strange environment in this state because what we anticipate, and there's no reason to think otherwise, when people are going to turn out by the millions to vote uh, for Baker heavily, overwhelmingly, and those same millions will vote uh, against Deal heavily, overwhelmingly. And that's a funky dynamic. Yeah, it, it really is. So I, I'm curious, on Election Day itself, so you say it's kind of quiet, you know, thing, the day goes on and, and around 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, are, are you hearing from, from the campaigns? Are they starting nope. to put a spin at all? Nope. No, nope. there's not that sort of exit polling national level, oh, uh, it's looking good, our preliminary numbers. Again, because... Um, you know, the um, campaigns generally are not funded. That's very sophisticated, very expensive work. And they're not funded to do exit polls per se about, you know, those, even those, even those statewide races. You know, we, you get, Gall the Secretary of State will hold a press conference on election day and he'll uh, report how turnout looks. And that can be an indication if you know what turnout can be expected to mean. You'll get, but you'll get, up, you get optimism. And I think it's frankly sincere optimism. You get optimism from uh, both sides of a race generally because, you know, they put so much effort into it. They have done everything they can to engineer the kind of upset they, they, they want. And there's no reason not to hope. It's, you know, I, I've never really thought about it this way, but it's a lot like uh, opening day in the baseball season. And that includes years when you don't win 108 games. Still, on opening day, it feels very legitimate to say there's no reason why we can't have a great season. Almost all campaigns feel like there's no reason we can't have a great night. And you hear that sort of thing for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. um, but as they say, the day itself is eerie at the state house and then the night is incredibly exciting and long and for the news service the work of election night is getting the right quotes from the winners and the losers trying to adjudge what our readers are most going to be interested in particularly our rather um, unusual and highly sophisticated subset of the population that has subscriptions to the news service. And then you do have to be, you know, pretty quick on your feet because when a Presley event, um, you, when, a, when a, press, a Presley outcome, I should say, transpires, suddenly if you expected to spend a lot of time with Capuano, well, that's not really the story, is it? It's the energy of the press, Presley and you got you to gotta, um, make tracks. And, and our reporters will make those kinds of tracks. Um, but as I say, I don't expect a lot of surprises this year. So it's probably going to be mostly uh, a question of, of getting um, quotes from really 
covering celebrations for the most part. I, one of the great joys of election night and everyone who, um, who's, who, uh, who uh, consumes the podcast should try once in his or her life to stand behind a confetti gun when a confetti gun is shooting its confetti into a ballroom. You have to have someone concede or you have to have the major net the major stations call the race but at some point a campaign staffer turns on the confetti gun and that's a unique and very cool uh slice of the democratic process yeah yeah i've been in i've been in some of those rooms when uh on on good nights and bad nights and and it's it's interesting dynamic either way what what, what are some of the most uh, memorable or or craziest things you remember from uh election nights past one of the very uh probably the most I don't know if it was exactly uncomfortable, but boy, was it strange to be at the caucus headquarters in Boston in 1988. It was the first year the states had been colored, but there were no red states, there were no blue states. And it was even in an era when, you know, every year in covering the elections, the networks would color the states. But I think I remember elections in the 70s when Democrats had red and Republicans had blue. But I know that in 1988, Re- Democrats had blue. And you that was the first year, and that was the first room where I heard blue and red states. And this was Massachusetts, and that was Mike Dukakis, and those guys really did know that they were gonna lose. And I was young enough that I didn't know how completely they knew they were gonna lose. So it was kind of strange to me and instructive how bummed out they were so far in advance. And then here came, you know, the real red wave where, what was that, 48 states or whatever it was, 45, I think, in 88. And they were so unhappy. And it was really instructive for a young reporter uh, learning to cover politics and particularly, you know, at that high level. Very instructive to see how genuine those emotions were, how hard they'd worked, how bummed out they were, how bummed out people that I had gotten to know over that year. It was my first year covering the state house in politics. How sincerely bummed out they were. In other words, how real it all was. And so that was transpiring. And then You know, I think that maybe I was stringing as well for the Associated Press, Ted Kennedy, who was also, well, he wasn't wasn't also winning. He was winning big, of course, in Massachusetts. And but he had uh, he was beating a very gracious young up and comer that not too many people knew. But he became a rising Republican star by the decency and energy of his campaign. And that was Joe Malone who two years later would be running for state uh, treasurer and uh, you know, taking out the Democrats and interestingly turning into quite a nasty practitioner against Salucci so that when by the time Malone, I, and I always kind of consider this a mistake, by the time Malone um by the time Malone was running against Salucci, it was attacked on politics. It didn't seemed to me that it was going to work very well, and it didn't. And it was certainly an abandonment of what had gotten him there, which was, I think that during the course of the campaign, Kennedy, in a sort of condescending way, but Kennedy got to like Malone because he had, in fact, conducted himself quite attractively 
And by 1994, when was that Salucci race? I don't No, it must have been 98. Um, you know, Malone was just such, he was unattractive. And that doesn't help po- most politicians. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, uh, but dialing back to that, the, that was one of the odd strains in the air was Kennedy, this lion, you know, giving the typical victory speech, but being so magnanimous and um, approving of his of his challenger it was an unforgettable night i mean nobody at o'neill and associates nobody in the city is going to remember election night 1988 wasn't particularly happy but it was it was strange and highly memorable so um tell us a little bit about statehouse news the the business has changed the news business has changed there's a lot of multimedia now that's right you recently launched a podcast right um tell us a little bit more well, I think that to a certain degree, I'm delighted to report that nothing has changed since I arrived in January of 1988 and printed out my copy on computer printers and ran them through our mimeograph machine, yeah. <laughs> which is how we distributed it in those days. Nothing has changed. The stories uh, need to be tightly written, compelling written, compellingly written. They're print stories and they're our main product. If anything, the intervening decades has just had, have just given us more effective means of delivering print. Having said that, people very much expect to hear the subjects of stories. They very much expect to be able to consume without reading. Even our subscribers, it's certainly true on a retail level, but even our subscribers want to be able to ride their elliptical machines with their headphones on and still hear about the news. And it's a service to to provide the news that way to them. And there would be, had we not early on, started doing videos as soon as videos could be... um, uh, made available via digital channels, had we not started doing that, we would be letting our subscribers down. Because nowadays, for example, in campaigns or even in uh, political fights like Airbnb, say, uh, people, it's not enough for people to read stories. If the speaker says something about Airbnb or the proponents of a tax on um, short-term rentals say something at a press conference, the opponents want to know exactly what it was who was said. So you have to do video. You have to do audio. It's enormously helpful. But you know what? It's still not, it's still not our core product. And for me as a practitioner of print, I'm delighted to say that fundamentally what we, the, 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 the fundamental what of what we do hasn't changed because I do think that they're uh, objective, authentic, deep, fact-based, careful uh, journalism that errs on the side of stodgy. If it, has a, if, it, if it has a problem, it's that it's boring is way better for democracy, society, journalism, everybody, than journalism that errs on the side of being too vapid or sensationalistic. Every, you know, everyone can look around and see whether the addition of music backgrounds, musical backgrounds to, uh, to news stories has augmented our public life or whether the 
vast and uh, stomach-churning tilts of the cable news networks to one side or the other seems to have made the country stronger, uh, more unified, and better able to solve its problems. Obviously, it hasn't. So to be a core, to be an oasis of sanity in that sort of seething foam of nonsense, it's a blessing. Mm-hmm. And it's profitable. And people, there's there's definitely a market for it. Yeah. I mean, the subscribers in our building, we it, every email that comes out, you know, with, a, with an update, uh, during the day right. is essential reading. It's essential to to our business. It's essential to uh, anyone that's doing business in the Commonwealth to have a subscription to to know what's going on, pay attention. Um, I'm also curious, and, and we can wrap it up uh, too. But you know, you've been there a long time. You have people, uh, reporters come through, and and they sure. they spend some time. They really learn the ropes with, with State House News do. and with the editor Mike Norton. Yeah, of the old school, and always will be. Yeah. So, um, you know, what is that experience like for a, a young reporter, kind of uh, coming there and and really learning how to do it? I think it's really good for developing young minds. You know, we screen for an ability or a seeming inclination to check the ego at the door, to care about facts, to prefer. In fact, I have an ad out for a reporter for my next brilliant 26-year-old. Then that ad says... Uh, wire service covering uh, uh, politics and policy, and then in parentheses, but not in that order because we prefer policy to politics. So we're looking for the unusual reporter who's not that interested in making a quick uh, impression or a quick mark with the sensational political story, but instead cares about the setting of politics public policy, the development of public policy, and those kinds of people quickly learn that there's more drama in the wrangling out of facts or abuses of the process or the way that the process does in that building get, get perverted. Uh, those report that there's more drama in really understanding nuts and bolts, both about process and policy, than there is in manufacturing drama for eyeballs and clicks, which is mostly what the the business is about. And I'm sure you've noticed it hasn't really even accomplished the financial goals of the business. Uh, So uh, our reporters are a a somewhat different breed, although I I do think that most people coming out of J school, particularly if they're young, are still committed to the idea of facts and truth. There's just not that many vehicles anymore to do serious policy reporting. Well, um, Craig, I can't thank you enough for for being here. We've had a this is a great discussion uh, again. Wonderful conversation. Um, yeah, the the takeout comes out every Friday. That it does, and that they are less long winded than I. They are uh, basically 
So we put our reporters in front of a microphone one at a time, and they each have about two and a half minutes to talk about their most compelling stories of the week. The whole thing is over in 10 minutes, and as I say, it is a good way to be on the tee or in the car or on the exercise equipment and get caught up with not only the most interesting stories of the past week, but also um, a little glimpse at least inside the head of the people that uh, subscribers of the news service have been reading all week. So it's really So fun. important, yeah. Well, thanks for being a part of our podcast. We're having a lot of fun doing this, and we look forward to having you back. It was a privilege to do it. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Two Minutes with Tom. Cayenne, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I look forward to this every week. I'm great. Thank you. I think you're bluffing, but we're going to go with it anyway. <laughs> I think it's always nice to catch up. and We've got a lot going on. Midterm elections are it's coming up. It's an important up. week, isn't it, huh? It is. Momentum. What do you think the momentum is? With the red or the blue? I don't want to say. You don't? I don't. Okay. I'm too nervous to I'll say. I'll venture a guess. Yeah, I'm. Um, I don't want to jinx anything, and you know, polls have led us astray before. So I'm just going to say everyone should get out and vote. Early voting is underway. It has been for a couple of weeks now in a lot of municipalities and uh, throughout the Commonwealth. I voted early. I voted early over at City Hall here in Boston, and waited in line. Right? Waited in line. I couldn't believe the crowd. It was the second day of of open voting, and I, I just couldn't get over the number of people that chose to. It's exciting. And do it quickly, yeah. Makes me feel good. And, and it showed a lot of folks there that, uh, you know, I'm sure they vote every couple of years, but a lot of women, mostly women. Um, well, we're young, efficient. A lot we of get young people, done. too, which was heartening. That is. That is. Yeah. There's a lot at stake. A lot at stake. I mean, I don't think there are going to be any surprises here in the state of Massachusetts. Um, but I think as we look around the country... You know, we we could win as many as 40 or 45 seats, I think, in the U.S. House of Representatives, which would give us a plurality of about 18 or 20, 15 to 20. And uh, I, I think that would be terrific. I think it would, for balance of powers, I think it would be great. On the U.S. Senate front, I, 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 I suspect the polls are probably closer to value. It, it, um, it looks to me like we, we probably will have a Senate that looks a mirror reflection of, of what it is today. Um, we may win a seat, we may lose a seat, but uh, it's going to principally, I think, be the same, the same body. So you had an op-ed in Commonwealth Magazine last week, and you talked about what the midterm elections mean um, for the country, but more specifically for Massachusetts and our delegation uh, in the House, should the House flip blue. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I think it's important to understand that, that we have uh, two or three members who have seniority positions in the U.S. House right now, namely Richie Neal from Springfield, a congressman from Springfield, who is the ranking member on the Ways and Means Committee in the U.S. House. So if the Democrats win, the ranking member means the leading senior, seniority member on the, on the minority party uh, will become the chair. And that's Richie Neal, which means an awful lot. He was in my the, professor in college. Well, he's then you know how good he is and how smart Great guy. he is. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in the Worcester District, Jim McGovern is the ranking member on the Rules Committee, which was the committee my father sat on and Joe Moakley sat on and became the chair of. Um, it's, a, it's a real leadership position. Anything that 
matters that, that has no money consequence goes to the Rules Committee, which means they control the ebb and flow of all legislation. Good old-fashioned policy. It's Well, and the chair of that committee is, is, is in a position to really say what goes and what doesn't go to the House floor. So that's a real balance of power. That's a real opportunity. I see the, the, other, the other very heartening news for the, the Democrats coming in and taking over the state, uh, the, the uh, U.S. Congress, would be the ability to do hearings. For example... You know, we've never had a hearing on the the government action on Puerto Rico following the devastating storm of of a year ago. You know, why not? What went wrong there? We had we had ships offshore that never delivered the goods they had people in cargo. Still it's power. just been crazy. There are three thousand people who lost their lives due to that storm. The care, the feeding, and the reestablishment of the infrastructure of that island is still wanting in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. A lot of questions need to be asked why and, and who's been responsible for it so that we can clean it up so that it never happens again. And that's just one example. Just There's one a example. There are a ton. <laughs> um, there are a ton. And you can start and end with Russia yep. and, and the roles that they've played on other midterm and presidential election years and what the involvement has been from a social media point of view. And did they persuade or dissuade people from going to the polls or voting in a certain way that, you know, that they were they were they were kind of misled into? Um, I think there were real questions about our democracy. I think there are real questions that need to be answered about the, the constitutional outlay for the future of this country. So you also talked a little bit about we know what's, you know, seniority wise and, and how Massachusetts, uh, you know, will be well positioned in our delegation, but also the energy that's coming. With an Ayanna Presley, for example. Oh, I think it's great. And we have a whole slew of new, younger people coming into Congress, people of color, women, uh, in greater numbers than we've ever had before. That's, that's very energetic. I mean, it's, that's an energy force that hasn't been there before. And it means brand new ideas. It means new opportunities for bipartisan relationships because newer people are going to bring newer ideas and thoughts. And, and hopefully they're going to be less, you know, extremized, if you will, um, for their party, and that they'll be more, you know, in neutral and want to work with the other side of the aisle. So I see nothing but positive coming from this next Tuesday election. Let me remind people that following the election, that following Friday, yes. in the morning at the Boston Harbor Hotel, our friend David Paleologus is going to be speaking over breakfast at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. Friday, uh, February 9th. Friday, February 9th, yeah. and, and we invite people to come. They've got to tell us if they're coming because, you know, it's, it's kind of a fixed number, and we have a lot of a lot of enthusiastic people that want to come and be there. But if people have an interest in it, if they could call the office here and let us know, they can call Kayan Isaacson and let her know. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Dave has been a guest on uh, OA on Air a couple of times. He's our sort of resident uh, pollster. Uh, another person I had as a professor um, in grad school, so we're keeping a theme here. There you are. Um, and he's great. I think uh, we'll have some great commentary. I've got to ask, midterm elections, a lot at stake, which we've talked about. In your, you've been in, in and around politics for a really long time. Um, have you ever, have you seen in midterm elections that there was so much at stake as this? Uh, given the, Given the level of discussion that we have in Washington, and, and given the, the bitterness that exists within the, the discourse in Washington, and given the leadership, frankly, that tries to deal in, in a very different way with constitutional powers and, and the power of the office, uh, 
I, I think this is the most important election of my life. So people need to get out and vote. Yeah, they need to if get out. If they haven't already, yep. get out and vote. If you haven't done it before, even more importantly, get out and do it for the first time. It's really very important. Yeah. Thanks, Kayan. Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Thanks for tuning in. Now don't forget to subscribe on whatever your podcast listening platform of choice is. That could be Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or our own O'Neill & Associates website. And one last reminder that Election Day is coming up on Tuesday, November 6th. Early voting is also underway here in Massachusetts if you don't really want to wait until then. We here at O'Neill & Associates encourage you to get out and vote. Your vote is your voice. Talk to you next week.